Section 7 of The Vampire Nemesis and Other Weird Tales of the China Coast by Dolly. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Ben Tucker. Section 7 Death Grips, Part 6. It was perhaps this disquietude that prompted me to call one evening after dinner on an old friend of mine, Fred Armstrong. It had been my custom in my bachelor days to drop in on him for a smoke and a game of chess and to discuss the news of the day, touching sometimes on deeper topics. Armstrong belonged to the idealistic school, and was an ardent follower of Berkeley and Hume. He retained, however, sufficient belief in the reality of existence of matter to be wishful of accumulating a pile of it in the form of gold, in which laudable endeavor he had been by no means unsuccessful. Withal, Armstrong was a deeply read man, and a man who never turned over the page before he had a thorough mastery of its contents. He received me with open avowals of delight. "'Just the man above all others I should have wished to see,' he remarked gaily. "'I am so glad the wife has consented to spare you for a few hours to lighten the dreary evening of a lone bachelor. I am fairly dying for a game of chess.' As he spoke, he was busily pulling the pieces from a neighboring drawer and drawing up an inlaid table to the fire. I expressed myself in no mood for chess just then but he would hear of no denial, so we sat down to our game. I think I played about the most idiotic game it has been my lot to play since first I learned the moves. I advanced my queen into the most absurdly unprotected positions until Armstrong had frequently to caution me of her danger. I moved the king into the check fully a dozen times, and scattered my pieces over the board without method or reason. At last, on the first pretense of a serious attack for the opportunity of which Armstrong had not long to wait, I resigned the game and pushed the board fretfully aside. I was in no fit mood for chess. I found it impossible to concentrate on the pieces, the thoughts that were so busy elsewhere. We lit our pipes and smoked for a while in silence, then, Armstrong, do you believe in hypnotism? I asked. He looked at me in silence. I repeated my question. Why, of course I do. It is one of the forces of nature, just as much as gravity or electricity. And yet, I remonstrated, science takes no cognizance of it. Science, quoted Armstrong sententiously, like the law, is an ass. She takes cognizance of nothing until it is literally forced upon her attention. Two hundred years ago, science took no heed of gravity until Isaac Newton infallibly demonstrated his existence. Then it was all eager investigation after they had first had their laugh at the so-called mad philosopher. There is no deadlier enemy to true research than this precious science. You believe, then, I asked breathlessly, that it is a potential or possibly actual force. Years hence, Armstrong replied, the laws of hypnotism, for like every natural force, it is subject to fixed laws, will be rescued from empiricism and tabulated as are today those of gravity and heat. I concede, he added slowly, that as yet we know but little of them. All we see now are results, and the cause is hidden in mystery. Do you think, then, that it is possible for one will to subjugate another? Armstrong smiled deprecatingly. Subjugate is hardly the word, he said at length. That is a vulgar error that the stronger will dominates the weaker, and compels it to do its bidding as one dictates to a child. What is it, then? I inquired. The thing is to have the power of projecting your own will into other persons, and of making it supersede their own, 
Mind you, do not overcome it, you only supersede it, shoulder it aside. Thus, what we call a strong-minded man may find his willpower superseded by a man of comparatively weak intellect, who has the power of detaching his own will from himself and of projecting it into another individual. It is a pure fallacy that it is merely a question of the relative strength of will. I am afraid, I hazarded unwilling to be duped a second time by idle shibboleths, I do not follow you. Will you explain? Armstrong, seeing my evident interest, warmed to his favorite topic. We know, he said in his didactic way, that certain nerves do not pass beyond the great nerve centers or ganglia, and are but remotely connected with the brain. The muscles are worked entirely from the ganglia, such, for instance, as the one that causes the descent of the diaphragm. And they perform their functions unremittingly without the slightest effort of volition on our part. Yet the reflex action of these great bunches of nerve fiber can, by a conscious effort, be brought under the sway of the will, and their power over the muscles be for the time suspended. We can hold our breath or stop the blinking of an eyelid, examples of purely reflex actions, by the exercise of our wills. Conversely, movements that we dreamed were entirely under the control of our volitions, such as the motion of a hand or foot, can be taken from the dominion of the will and be governed by the reflex action of the ganglia, as when a gun is fired in the vicinity of a nervous person he starts involuntarily, though perhaps but a moment before he had schooled himself to withstand the shock. His pipe during this long speech had gone out. Mine, in the absorption of what he said, was equally cold. Now we both relit and smoked for a while in silence. That, I mused, belongs almost as much to my branch of science as yours. It is possible, Armstrong continued unheeding, that in this manner all the movements of the newly born infant are purely reflex, that the sensations travel no farther than the ganglia or the cerebellum at most, and are there translated into action without the willpower having any hand whatsoever in their control. Later the cerebellum may take command of certain movements, and direct when a message shall be sent along the nerves ordering the muscles to act. But even then we have seen that certain actions still remain under the peculiar control of the ganglia, and it requires a special exercise of will to wrest from them their power and alter for the moment their course. Yes, yes, I interrupted impatiently, for I thought he was straying wide of the subject about which I was so eager to learn more. But how does that affect hypnotism? The obvious inference, my dear Keith, would seem to be that the hypnotist, by some telepathic disturbance set up in the mind of the subject, interposes his own will between the volitions and the nerve centers, cutting the lines of communication until every movement, however intricate, is, so far as the will of the subject is concerned, as much a reflex action as was that of breathing or digestion. And now, as the telegraphist who has cut a telegraph wire can affix to the severed end his own instrument and send what message he will to its destination, while the messages from the station at the other end can no longer pass through, the hypnotist gains entire control of the wires leading to the muscles and can transmit to them what order he pleases and be obeyed. He is thus the complete mastery of the human machine, while the brain of the subject, thinking and willing as coherently as ever, finds its messages along the nerves intercepted and lost before they can be translated into motion. What else is somnambulism? Armstrong looked at me defiantly, as if challenging contradiction, but I nodded my head in approval and let him go on. 
Another will, the dream will, is interposed between the sleeper's mind and his body, and he performs deeds that in his waking moments would be utterly beyond him. A somnambulist in his sleep can walk in safety across a plank spanning a yawning abyss, which in the daytime he would be unable to contemplate without a shudder. And why? Because his movements are beyond the control of the volitions, and, real as the brain may, the steps remain firm and steady. So, I said, impressed and startled by this new phase of the subject, you hold that it is not a matter of will opposed to will. Armstrong made a gesture of impatience. I emphatically deny that the hypnotist conquers or overcomes the will of the subject. He simply sets it aside and interposes his own volitions between it and the movements of the body it should control. While, as I have said, the brain goes on thinking and willing, it is as surely restrained from influencing the actions of the muscles as if the knife of the surgeon had severed the spinal cord immediately below the medulla oblongata. Have you found during your investigations, I questioned again, that the subject is easier to hypnotize after each successive operation? Decidedly, he answered promptly, though perhaps it is largely a matter of temperament. Some will go under the influence easily at the first attempt. With others, it requires frequent and repeated efforts before the hypnotic state can be easily induced. In all, I believe it becomes easier after each operation until the hypnotist can put that particular subject off by merely willing it. And what are the limits of distance at which the force can act? As far as thought itself, there are no limits. When we discover the limit to which we can project our thoughts, we shall probably have found the limit at which will force is effective. You can think as easily of objects five yards away as of the mountains and the moon, or the nebulous patches that astronomers tell us are star clusters in the outermost limits of space. Have you ever known, Armstrong, something suddenly prompted me to ask, this power to have been used for a wrong purpose? I have never had personal experience of it, he answered, but I have heard of cases where the hypnotist has made his subject commit crime against his will, though he was conscious of what he did. He was looking at me curiously, his suspicions perhaps aroused by my intense interest. It is a fascinating subject, I answered evasively. It is a fascinating subject, he responded. Think of the boundless fields for research lying ready to the hand of science which she is blindly ignoring. When a biologist discovers some new microbe, half the scientific world goes crazy with delight, and the other half watches its proceedings with breathless concern. Yet here are these virgin fields inviting the explorer, and only a few pioneers to venture on the task. How petty do such paltry researches into matter appear when compared with this one that strikes at the very root of being and the matter of the soul. I bade good night to Armstrong and walked home to our little house in Blank Road, pondering deeply on many things, and uppermost in my thoughts was ever this hitherto neglected branch of mental science, whose manifestations I had years before spurned from me as spurious. Thus I thought bitterly did the quacks that hover in their shoals round everything sensational deter the earnest from research and throw them off the scent more effectively than Armstrong had, in his scathing irony accused the costless ban of science of doing. Yet my own earlier eagerness to investigate as deeply as I might had to a great extent evaporated. Something had cooled my ardor, something I could neither name nor locate. End of Section 7